We started a conversation last week, which probably for me as a, a follower of Jesus now for 37 years, gosh, it's a long time, isn't it? 37 years is a reoccurring theme in my life. I think one of the difficulties I think for many of us as Christians is we come away from a world that in so many ways we begin to become almost irrelevant to because our lives are so obsessed and absorbed with trying to pursue the person, the presence, and the plan of God. And actually, I've noticed that over time, if I'm not careful, if I'm not careful, I end up being very church-centric in the way I live my life. My life revolves around meetings and people and various kind of attributes and aspects of what it means to be a pastor in the church. And actually, one of the places where I find myself most energized is not necessarily in meetings like this, as good as they are, um, I find myself very energized when I'm talking with people who don't know Jesus. I find myself that God turns up in those particular moments in ways that surprise me, and they continue to surprise me after 37 years. They don't surprise me because I'm surprised at God. I'm just surprised that God will use my life. I'm surprised that God would take those opportunities, often fumbling around in the dark, trying to say something or connect with somebody in some meaningful way. I'm surprised that the Holy Spirit is very present at times like that and, and very strategic in the things that you end up talking about with people. Have you noticed that? Uh, I visit some people and I think, gosh, what will I say to them when I get there? And uh, that scripture that says, open your mouth and I will fill it, suddenly begins, become, becomes very real to me. I, I, I'm meeting with a couple of people who as yet have not made up their mind about Jesus. And uh, actually, that's a great place to kind of camp sometimes and be because if we're not careful, it becomes all about us. It becomes all about this. It becomes all about gatherings and songs and preaching and sermons and you know, Jesus didn't save you to get you to come to church. God's dream for your life was far more than that you just become a believer and attend meetings and go to seminars and get teaching on all kinds of things. God's dream for all of our lives has always been that we would come alive in his presence. That's the starting point. And bring that life to every environment that he places us in. That's the wonderful thing about the great commandment and the fulfillment of the great commission. They are the two sides of the same story. And the reason why I think it's so important to keep reminding ourselves about that is because God has entrusted us, the believers, with an assignment. And that assignment is to lead the earth into life. That's why we're here. That's what this is all about. Not just to keep ourselves from sin, but to invade every space and every place with the presence and the power and the ability of God. You see, when God created the human being, he created them to shape the world around them. And man's very first moments were filled with the most breathtaking honor. You see, Adam knew this truth, and it's a truth I'm hoping at the end of our time in this month or so together, we will start to learn to. Adam knew that not only was he treasured, but he was trusted. See, the book of Genesis in many ways sets the scene for us. If you have your Bible with you, why don't you go to Genesis chapter 2 for me, please? Because beginnings in the scriptures are always important. And what we find when we study these beginnings, the initiations of things, that they point us to a consistent and persistent desire of God to see something fulfilled. And right at the beginning of human experience, 
we find a very important moment, a, a moment that for many of us perhaps will come a little as a surprise, but it's a moment that has a fullness attached to it that I believe we will see in years to come the very visible, tangible evidence of this moment in all of its expansive reality. We see that Adam, first of all, Adam has no idea he's inferior to God. He walks with God like a friend, the Bible teaches us, in the cool of the day. And God shares his heart with Adam, and Adam shares his heart with God. But there's a wonderful moment in the middle of this narrative that I think for many of us we just need to grab hold of because it's actually the very essence of who we are supposed to be and how we are supposed to live. In Genesis chapter 2, out of a place that's centered in intimacy with God, God invites Adam to do what mankind was created to do. From that place of connection, that place of identity, comes an authority that's released through Adam that actually begins to shape the culture of the world around him. In Genesis 2, verse 20, this is what the scriptures say. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds in the air and the sky, and all the wild animals. But for Adam, there was no suitable helper that was found. So what we're finding here is that the one who received life has now been charged to bring life. He's not only treasured by God, but he's trusted by God to change the environment and shape the world around him. So Adam began at the very beginning declaring that he wanted a particular type of culture in which he was supposed to live. Adam knew he was trusted as well as treasured. So why is that important? Because Adam had already spent time with God. His heart had been shaped by that uh, intimacy. He'd been very clear, I suppose, in his communications backwards and forwards with the Lord God Almighty that he was created in the image of God. And to be created in the image of God means far more than just living in personal piety or purity. To be created in the image of God is a more expansive reality than that, that God has given you a capacity to shape the world around you. His kingdom comes in you, and then his kingdom comes through you. And it's the most remarkable biblical story of the, pur the purpose and the reasoning for our existence here on the earth. Adam knew he was entrusted to rule. He was entrusted with a culture that was heavenly to change and shape the culture around him which was earthly. One that would shape, one that could be shaped through all kinds of ways. Firstly, through ideas. Ideas change the world. Somebody somewhere came up with a wild idea about the internet. Has that changed your world? It continues to be an adventure for all of us. Now, I believe that not all ideas come from God, but when you live in relationship with God, you have access to the creator of all things. And God has a capacity, God has a capacity to pour into our lives something that seems like a fleeting thought. But given the time to consider and to pray and to walk with God in humility and in, I think, courage, we will start to see some things begin to form in the world around us. Every time God speaks, he has a purpose. Inventions. Inventions are the most wonderful thing. We wouldn't be here today enjoying the sound that we're enjoying or enjoying the light that we've got in this room but that someone somewhere came up with this great idea that we didn't need gas lights anymore and we could have electric light. I know it's a long time ago, but we're still benefit benefiting from that invention. God wants to harness our imaginations. 
And when he harnesses our imaginations, he begins to work in us and through us to shape the world around us. Because God has a plan. This is not accidental. You didn't come to the kingdom without a purpose and a plan. And the wonderful thing about the body of Christ, from my perspective, is that we are all so uniquely different, yet the same. We all have our own particular way of thinking and living. In fact, if you were to pull it apart and examine it, the way we all relate to God is slightly different and unique because God has chosen to reveal himself to you in a particular way. But out of those places of intimacy comes a recognition of your identity. I am a child of the Most High God. But that's not the end of the story, and that seems to be where the church wants to camp. We love the intimacy, we're all growing in our identity, but what we fail to understand is both of those are a triune connection to this fundamental reality, and that is that we carry a heavenly authority to shape everything around us in our world. It's a remarkable biblical story at the beginning of human experience where God entrusts humanity to lead the earth to life. Let's go back to that scripture for a minute, and we're going to read from verse 26. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, over all the creatures that move along the ground. And so God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And verse 28 says, And God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Just pause for a moment. Is that really the way you think of your day-to-day life? Your purpose for existing to fill the earth and subdue it? What are we wanting to do? What does that actually invite us to engage with? We're to fill the earth with the goodness of God. We're to fill the earth with the power of the Holy Spirit. We're to fill every environment with the capacity of the greatness of God to change the realities for the people in those environments. So every time you step out of your house, well, even before that, we just heard this morning, while you're sitting at your table talking with your children, your role there as a believer in Jesus Christ is not just to grow in your own intimacy with God, Intimacy without a sense of identity leaves people impotent. So we grow in intimacy, but we're growing in identity. But the outworking of that identity is that we recognize we carry the most exceptional authority to shape the world around us, whether it's a parent at a kitchen table trying to communicate with their child, or you're in a work environment. That is the reason that God has brought you into this glorious communion with him so that you can shape the world around you. Now, by the end of my time in this church, which will come in a few years' time, I don't know when, when I die or retire, whichever comes comes first, okay, unless somebody gets rid of me, but that's possible because I'm going to get very risky over the next few years. I'm just warning you up front, it's going to get a bit rocky, okay. I have long since carried this phenomenal belief that the best days of the church are ahead of her. And I've been through good, bad, and ugly in in this kind of environment over and over again. But actually, it's not just my belief. It's a conviction that comes from Scripture that says the glory of the latter house. Notice the word glory. That's not better meetings. 
The glory of the latter house means simply this, that we are living in the fulfillment of intimacy, that we are overwhelmingly clear about our identity as sons and daughters of God, and we are filling the earth with his glory. So the greatest move of God will not be a move of God in the church. The greatest move of God ever known to mankind will be a move of God through the church as people start to lift and rise themselves out of some befuddled thinking about identity and about authority and about intimacy. God blessed them. He blessed them to be fruitful and increase in number, to fill the earth with his glory, fill every space with his power, come to every environment knowing that you have an authority that comes from God himself, not to bring attention to yourself, but to bring glory and honor to the name of Jesus Christ. And therefore, we're asked also to subdue some things. Now, what do we need to subdue? We need to release, but we also need to subdue. There is a culture that exists in our world that it really doesn't matter what you believe. You can believe in crystal fairies. You can believe that paint has a life and a name. You can believe that the earth is made of chrysalis. It doesn't matter what you believe, but if you believe that you're a Christian, if you believe in Jesus Christ, clearly you are mentally insufficient. And so every time we step out of our door, we are not walking into a world that's open to the ideas of God. We're not walking into an environment that says, yes, come on, I love to hear what you have to say about Jesus. And we have to subdue the works of the devil and release the power of the kingdom. And every time you release the power of the kingdom, you are subduing the works of the devil. Every time there's a miracle, the devil doesn't get the last laugh on someone's life. Every time someone gets a breakthrough, that's a moment where heaven touches earth through your intimacy, identity, and authority in Christ. You start to see the kingdom come, and when the kingdom comes, every other kingdom has to go. You see, as human beings, we can clearly see from the scripture that we were entrusted to rule and to bring design. Adam was trusted to speak the words and to shape the lives of those who were around him. As a result of that, God began to move through him. Of course, we know that there's a sadness to this story because although Adam had all of those permissions granted to him, he actually began to steal back from God his true trust, and eventually that relationship changed. So we are given by God and created by God to bring life and light to every environment. And that, that task is so much greater than just having a good church meeting. That adventure is so much more vast than perhaps our minds can truly understand. But that's what it means to be given by God this privilege of intimacy, this growing understanding of our identity, and this profound authority. And when Jesus in Matthew 28 speaks to the New Testament church, he's talking about the very same thing. In fact, this theme runs throughout the whole of scriptures, that God bought for himself by his precious blood a people that he would cause to know him, intimacy. They would grow up to become like him, identity, and through them they would change the world, authority. It's not a new phenomenon. Actually, as you read through the scriptures, you see it completely and utterly repeating itself over and over again. So I want to just suggest to you today that whatever you think of that concept, permission has already been granted. God has granted you permission to change the world. You see, discipleship for many of us has been about sin avoidance. 
We want to keep as far away from the culture of our world, frightened, I suppose, that in many, many ways it's going to affect us negatively. But the truth is, greater is he who is in you than any culture that exists in this world. And um, I am really fierce about this because I think sometimes the church sings songs they don't believe. I think sometimes we quote scriptures we don't live. When we send our young people off to university, this is our prayer. God, keep them out of the pub. God, keep whatever sexual encounters they have to the, to, to the non-capacity ability. You know, we've got to stop it and don't mentality when it comes to those things. And our hope is that they will survive three years in university and not lose their faith. Now, there's something quite wrong about that narrative. What does that have to do with what the scriptures say is our intimacy, identity, and authority? Here's what we should be praying. God, please help the heathens in that university. They are about to have a bomb that's going to go off amongst them that can change everything related to them. We send our young people out with the impression that the world is more powerful than the God who lives inside of them. We're constantly saying to people, keep away from it and stop it and don't, instead of saying, go get them. Go change them. Turn up in your intimacy. Turn up in your identity and shift the culture around you and bring destiny and life to the people that God's placed around you. We don't think like that. We sing it. Talk a good talk. But we are not training our young people to think like that. And so we're grateful to God if they manage to go to university and don't have a sexual relationship with someone. That's a very low-level expectation. My hope is that they would take a thousand people with them into the kingdom of heaven. If they manage not to have too much alcohol or take drugs, then we're really grateful. Hallelujah, praise you, Jesus. What we need to be saying is, God, you need to help upgrade our thinking because the intoxicating love of Jesus Christ is the most potent force, far more powerful than cocaine or any of those kind of things. We want that to be released, your presence to be released, God, in the environments in which our young people are. Hallelujah, Pastor Simon, thank you. <laughs> These words are pregnant with permission for human beings, followers of Jesus Christ, to fill the earth with his glory. Subduing all other cultures and making available to every environment the culture of the kingdom of heaven. But they also reveal something quite significant to us about the nature of our God. They reveal his vulnerability. God has entrusted this world to you and to me. That is huge in our thinking. The divine one, the king of kings and the lord of lords, doesn't just treasure you. He trusts you with his world. He trusts you with this planet. He trusts you with the people he's placed around you. As human beings, we have been entrusted with the most incredible authority. I must be honest with you. If I was God, I'd rethink it. Thank God he's God. Amen. 
And I think believers have no difficulty, well, most of the time, in believing that God loves them. We believe that we are the treasure of God. Amen? Here's where our head talks to take that few backflips. God actually trusts us. He trusts us. Now, I don't trust me. There lies the big problem. So why would I believe that God trusts me? We've got a two-way conversation going on here today. That's good. <laughs> he believes more in you than you currently believe in him. Let that sink in. He believes more in you than you currently believe in him. He thinks that you can change the world. He knows that given the right environment and connection to him and intimacy, that the right place to grow in your sense of identity, that the authority will just flow through you. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 13 for me. This is the consistency of God's trust to humanity. In 1 Corinthians 13 verse 7, this is what it says of him. His love always protects. Listen to the next phrase. Always trusts. Always hopes and always perseveres. Both the old and the new covenants clearly invite us to understand that we are not just treasured, but we are also trusted. So how does this trust relationship with God work? Why would God, and I use this phrase so regularly, perhaps it's become commonplace now, God has entrusted the advances of his kingdom to the partnership he has with his people. What is it about that trust relationship that we need to understand? Because I think we do. If, if the world is waiting for us to turn up with this kind of clarity, then let's get clear. If all of creation is waiting for the sons and daughters of God to be revealed, then let's become the sons and daughters of God that we were created and called to be. Let us not just be church attenders who try and stay away from the world, let us seek the God that we sing so gloriously to that we could become like him in changing the world. To lead our city to life, it's going to require all of us to come alive to these truths. Because right now, I don't see many Christians living with that kind of clarity. I think people are trying to avoid the world as opposed to understand that the world really is running from you. When you grow in your identity, trust me, people around you will start to pay attention to that. In fact, purity is always a matter of identity. That's one of the reasons why we're not training our young people to go off into the world very clearly, because when they know that they know that they know that they are the beloved of God, and they live in that intimate relationship, then any other beloved becomes a secondary and unimportant matter. I think God trusts you so much he moved in with you. Your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. God lives with you. I wouldn't live with you. 
I'd want locks on the door at least. And you wouldn't want to live with me. I'm a nightmare. But God trusts you and I so much that he moved in with us. Our body has become the temple in which he dwells. See, you're not only loved, you're definitely trusted. The story tells us in Genesis 6. Go there, would you please? That this desire and this design that God had for human interaction with him actually went terribly wrong through Adam. And um, what started as an act of mistrust from Adam to God, he felt God was withholding some things, actually in the New Testament we find is restored through an act of trust. When we trust on the Lord Jesus Christ for our salvation, we are repairing the damage that was inflicted upon us by our ancestor Adam. It says of Jesus in, in the New Testament that the second Adam has restored everything that was lost by the first Adam. So when Jesus came and gave his life for us, died on the cross, rose from the dead, ascended to heaven, he'll come again in glory to judge the living and the dead. He restored us completely in those acts and those demonstrations, but actually it's our trust in what he has done for us that takes us out of people who are subjected to sin and have no choice over that to people who now have a choice because who the Son has set free has become and is becoming free indeed. Prior to Christ, you had no choice over sin. Now Christ is in you. You have authority over sin. And when you get to heaven, there won't be any sin to have authority over. So what God is doing here is training you to live in your new identity so that when you meet him in glory, you will be like him. But God had his moment, and if I was God, I'd have had it much quicker. In Genesis 6, 6 verse 6, it says, The Lord regretted that he had made human beings on the earth, and his heart was deeply troubled. Romans 3, verse 23, if you have your Bible, turn to it, reminds us of the state of that condition now. It says, all have sinned and have fallen short. Notice the phraseology here of the glory of God. In other words, all have sinned as a result of this separation that took place through Adam. All have sinned and have fallen short of the glory of God. Not the purity of God, not the holiness of God. All of those things are encompassed in this truth, but the glory of God. In other words, our sin has kept us. Our sin has retarded us. Our sin has restricted us from our intimacy, our identity, and fundamentally its greatest goal was to steal our authority. And it's happened to all of us. Satan's desire was that we, those who've been created in the image of God, would never, ever be restored to our authority. And I, I'm going to keep this real for you. You know, as somebody whose major emphasis, really, in relationship with God is about intimacy, I think sometimes we can get hijacked by thinking that intimacy alone will change the world. If you look at the natural, intimacy in the natural between a husband and wife should have reproduction attached to it. 
The intimate act has a goal beyond the intimacy itself, and that is that you would fill the earth with life. So if we're just consistently abiding in intimacy with God and there's no reproductivity, then we've misunderstood what intimacy can produce or we have given up maybe believing that God could use our lives exceptionally. So we can have our prayer meetings and sing our songs and weep before the Lord, but actually that's just the starting point. It's not the end result. And I believe, I want to say this with some honesty, unless we are doing that, unless that culture is taking place in our lives, we will never grow in to the fullness of our identity as followers and believers in Jesus Christ. You cannot get there by intellect. It comes through encounter. Hello? But that's not the end of it, that we have just great teaching and we have great encounters with God because God has not only <laughs> clearly indicated to us that we are treasured, and that treasure is evidenced in intimacy and evidenced in identity, but we are also trusted, trusted by him to bring life to every context and every environment. In spite of the fact that God had second thoughts about giving away this reality to mankind, trusting them with the world, he never rescinded on that. He never pulled back that authority from humanity. And that's why I think in many ways what we're seeing in Russia playing itself out with the Ukraine is authority misguided and misunderstood and clearly causing havoc and chaos in the world. There is an authority that's at work in our world that's not harnessed by intimacy. It's not uh, blessed by uh, identity. And as a, as a result of that, all kinds of evil practices take place in our world. There is, there's, and actually, I want to just say to you without trying to scare you, it's going to get worse. It's going to get worse. It's not going to get better. And, and our prayer, the prayer of the church has to be this. The spirit and the bride say, come Lord Jesus. We, we don't know how to pray sometimes, but we do know how to pray that. Come Lord Jesus, the spirit and the bride, that's us. Come Lord Jesus, kingdom of God come here in this place. Kingdom of God fill the earth. Let the glory of God fill the earth as the waters cover the earth. And we're moving quickly and swiftly towards those realities. But we can see that in spite of the fact that man has used the authority given to him for all kinds of terrible things, God never chose to rescind on it. He allowed man to continue with that authority to shape culture. Man continued to live with the capacity for creating and reigning. Man frequently continued to abuse that authority and still does. To abandon his humanity, his truest humanity, and to abdicate the fulfillment of that humanity, which is to bring glory to God. And nonetheless, man was still crowned with glory. Go to Psalm 8 for me, would you please? Psalm 8, verses 4 to 8 says this. What is man that you are mindful of them? Human beings that you care for them. You have made them a little lower than the angels. Look at this phrase. And crowned them with glory and honor. 
Notice that these two sentences are interacting with one another. You have made them a little lower than the angels and crowned them with glory and honor. This relationship that God has entrusted to us, this glorious invitation to partner with him to change everything around us, only really works when we honor him. He already has honored us in crowning us with glory, but we need to honor him. And, and the biblical understanding of honor is not lip service. The biblical understanding of honor is to stoop down and to lift another up. So when we worship, that's actually what we're doing. We're stooping down and we're lifting the name of Jesus up. When we pray, we are stooping down and lifting up the name of Jesus. Your prayers don't change anything. It's the God in your prayer that changes everything. Your prayers are just words. You're just telling God what you feel or what you think or what you want out of life. But actually, when you stoop down and recognize your need of him to move, you are honoring him. There is only you, God, who could change this situation. Every miracle you see is a stooping down and honoring. I can't heal the sick. You can't heal the sick. But I, I'm in intimate relationship, growing in a sense of identity as who I am as a son of God. And I know that he has given me a glory, a glory attached to his name, not my name, and an authority to release life even over bodies that are fundamentally broken and in terrible need of a miracle. So we keep Honoring the one who treasures and trusts us. When I was in Glasgow, we had this, I told this story somewhere this week, I can't remember, but we had this line, we have a prayer ministry team, and um, this little lady came one day. She was regular in the church. She used to, I mean, her initial conversation with me went like this. Now, George Jeffries, the founder of Elam, there was a man of God. I don't know what she was saying about me. I didn't linger too long in the thought. I thought, yes, he was. He was definitely a man of God. And, and she'd been there. She got saved at the end of the campaigns in Glasgow. One of the few that are still alive that um, were there at that time. Great outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And we were starting to just pray for the sick a little bit more and trying to move towards this authority that God has given us to bring life to humanity again. And um, she lined up at the end. And I was in a terrible place with God. I just kind of felt really kind of disappointed with some things and a bit ticked off with some people. You ever get there? Stop lying, you do. And you're there probably now. Okay. So how's the Lord? Speak the truth. <laughs> Speak the truth. And so I didn't want, I can't even remember her name, but Mrs. something or other her name was. And I, I thought, I'm not, I'm not going to pray for her. She deserves better than me. She deserves better than me. And on our prayer ministry team was a wonderful lady called Marion. And Marion was so godly. I mean, I think Marion might have been the fourth member of the Godhead. <laughs> Marion was so godly. She was just always loving Jesus. And I thought, Marion, would you pray for Mrs. whatever her name was? That wasn't her name, whatever her name was. Okay. And so Marion prayed for her. And so we get on with business and move to the end. And I find that she's here. Mrs. whatever her name is came back. So I thought, who's better than Marion? I don't know. I'm struggling to find anyone better than Marion. Who is it, Jesus? Jane. Get Jane to pray for her. Okay, Jane. <laughs> Mrs. whatever. On you go. Knock yourself out, Jane. And so she prayed for Mrs. whoever her name was. 
And I thought, that's it, it's done, you know. It's, it's, she's prayed. And then I come back down this end, and she's there again. I think, what is going on here, God? She's been prayed for twice by two of the holiest people in the church. What is going on? And God said, you should pray for her. She wants you to pray for her. Now, she heard me speak, and she said, Pastor, is that you? And she couldn't see. She had um, a condition, a growing condition, where she was growing rapidly blind. That's why I didn't want to pray for her. I mean, I don't mind headaches and <laughs> things like that. I was, I was kind of at that level, you know. I think, well, or an ingrown toenail, let's go there. Something like that. Varicose veins, I'm quite good with varicose veins. But, you know, blindness isn't kind of, you know, I'm not really that great at that at all. And so she grabbed my hand as I went to walk away. She said, Pastor, I'd like you to pray for me. So I grabbed her hands, this dear little old lady. And this is, this, this is so true. And this is what the Lord says, spit in her eyes. Okay? And I said, I will not. And God said again, spit in her eyes. And I said, I won't do that, God. I can't do that. He said, you can't not do that, Simon. I hate spitting. Of all the things, the human habits that people have, I think spitting is gross. So I just said to her, could you lift your head for me slightly? <laughs> I took hold of her hands. I went, <laughs> and spat into her eyes. And it was like the world stopped. Everything stopped. And I look at Marion and Jane out of the corner of my eyes, and they're like, Are you nutcase? You a nutcase? So after I caught that out of the corner of my eye, I look at this lady's face, and it's dribbling down her face. And I think, I think oh, God, this is the worst moment of my life. Just come, Lord Jesus. The spirit of the bride, come, Lord Jesus. And she started to cry. I thought, oh, great. I really upset her now, really upset her. And she started to speak. She could barely speak. She was so overcome. And she said, I can see. I can see. I can see. I'm crying. Everyone's crying. You see, when we think of these things, we're always troubled, I think, by the identity that we have allowed to be fashioned in our lives that we're sinners. And so we come to these moments thinking of our own inadequacy. We don't come to these moments thinking of God's authority or God's capacity. And I don't know how many times I found myself in moments like that where I was making it about me. And, and God doesn't heal because I'm good. God heals because he's good. And, and when I start to understand these things, and I'm growing in my understanding of them, not there yet, I realize that what God invited us to do in the making and creating of human beings was that we would be carriers of his image. And that's so much more than personal piety. It's so much more than spirituality. In fact, it isn't more than spirituality. It's a spirituality that all around it changes and shapes the world in which it's placed. And obviously, that lady was delighted. I'm still grossed out by the story. Hardly ever tell it. I think it's one of the worst moments of my life. But, but it taught me, it taught me that God has placed on my life something I can't see, 
something I always disqualify myself from believing because I look at what I'm not and I don't remember what he said or what he has uh, given me as a, as a child of God. Um, and I, I think so often, I think that extraordinary, that extraordinary authority we've been given sits under the radar of our shame. Our shame seems to dampen it down. Now, I, I defy you to, to disagree with that because most of the time we don't pray for people for these things because we feel conscious of our inadequacy. You haven't prayed enough, you haven't fasted enough, you had two extra sandwiches off the buffet and you're a terribly greedy person. Whatever it is that, that's playing itself out in your life is your old nature trying to infiltrate your new reality and tell a story that isn't true. You are no longer a sinner. You are a saint. You are a child of God. You are an image bearer of the Most High God. You have been given intimacy. You have been afforded identity, and you are growing in understanding your authority. What is man that you are mindful of them, human beings that you care for them? You've made them a little lower than the angels and crowned them with glory. This is our truest self. This is why we were created, to fill the earth with the glory of God. And that honor keeps us consistently in this place where we're recognizing that as we lift up God, as we acknowledge God, as we allow God to be God in our lives, that honor facilitates his, uh, his desire to work in us and to work through us. As I lift up the name of Jesus over that Mrs. whatever her name was, and I prayed furiously in those moments, God, let your name be honored. Lord, let you do something that shocks us all and teaches us all about your nature and character, as I recognized that I was in many ways um, working from an old mindset and not recognizing I've been given a new life, a new creature in Christ, the old has gone and the new has come, that everything had been lost through sin was restored to me through Christ. When I started to understand these things, I became far more courageous in praying for people. And look what it says here, connected to that glory and honor. You made them rulers over the works of your hands. Do you know, can I push this a little bit with you? Every sickness is not your Lord. I've walked this journey with Jesus, I say, for 37 years. I find that people start identifying themselves with their sickness. Have you noticed that? When you partner with something, you give it the full authority it desires over your life. Now, I'm not into the other opposite thing, and I want to just say this to people who may have this thought. I'm not into denial. You know, I've met people who say, I haven't got cancer, I haven't got cancer, and then they died. So clearly you did have cancer. Let's just keep it real. You did have cancer. Okay? We've all had these extremes, haven't we? One extreme is, I'm partnering with it. This is who I am. I've become, you know, I've got, forgive me, I don't want to hurt anybody, but one of the ones that I get a little bit concerned about is ME or some of those things where there's not physical evidence necessarily by certain quarters that that's a condition, but people have suddenly identified themselves with having ME. Let me tell you a story that, that, that helps understand that. A 14-year-old girl in our church in Bristol for a long time had fatigue. I mean, it's hardly, you know, surprising. Her mother was a crazy person. And she had to navigate the home, and I'm just keeping it real for you. The woman was all over the place. And, and so this 14-year-old girl was a friend of my daughter. She was a similar age. 
came to the church and she used to come out every week for prayer. Her mom would trolley her out every week for prayer. I don't think she had a great faith, but she just did as her mom told her to do. And then after a, a period of time, they decided they'd go in to the hospital and get a diagnosis. She's 14. She should be full of life. She'd be trying to keep her in, not trying to get her out. But, but the problem was the minute they diagnosed it as ME, literally the Friday, on the Sunday, she turned up in the church in a wheelchair. And I just thought, what is that? What is that? And so I said to her, you need to get out of that wheelchair. Her mother was horrified. I mean, in many, many ways, they wanted to find an answer to a problem. But the minute you start partnering, guess what? She got so bad, she couldn't get up out of bed. You see, the Bible says, with two or more agree on something, it shall be. That principle works in both ways. When I agree with something I shouldn't agree with, it comes to pass. Rejection. Your mom might not have liked you so much, or you may not have liked her. I don't care which way around it is. It's the same problem. Okay? It's the same problem. You go to school, somebody else hurts you. Now you've got two evidences that you're not everything that the world was waiting for. You are not the gift of God. You presumed you were to the planet. You get into a relationship. Somebody else lets you down. Before you're 15, you have a catalog of five or six incidents in your life that say that you are not valuable. You believe this because you have started to believe the propaganda of the devil over your life, okay? And you've started to partner with it. So now you're an apology. You're a walking apology. Not only are you a walking apology, but when you're in a relationship, you expect it to go wrong. It's called a bitter root expectation. Why? Because you've been rejected and you've been rejected. So now you are partnering with Something that isn't from heaven. Now, we don't partner with it out loud. We don't say, oh, I'm rejected. See, I used to laugh about this. I used to say, I am so rejected that even the spirit of rejection has rejected me. (laughs) (laughs) Even that left, and it's meant to stay. He caused all the problems and then walked away. It's the story of our lives. Partnering with something is really important to pay attention to because you might be partnering with things that have got nothing to do with your new life in Christ. That's your old man coming back to take your new life. That's your old man coming to steal from you your new identity, your new destiny, and your new authority. That's your old man not lying down because the devil rarely lies down, okay? Trying to rob and to steal and to destroy what God is trying to give you. So did God make you a ruler over the earth? Or does your emotions and your feelings and your life experiences trump the word of God? Which is it? Did God say you were the head and not the tail? Or is it the catalog of rejections that has shaped your understanding of your identity And by default has stolen from you your authority. Whose report are you believing? You made them rulers over the works of your hands. You put everything under their feet, including sickness. All the flocks and herds and the animals in the wild, the birds in the sky and the fish in the sea. All that swim in the paths of the sea. The truth is, church, we've been enslaved by all kinds of things, but God has remained 
in that place and posture of trusting us with the world in which he's placed us. You and I have an extraordinary authority. Not just given to us at the infancy of mankind, but restored to us at the commission of a new world where God sent his people out in Matthew 28. Go into all the world and subdue every culture, every demonic power, every influence that's robbing and stealing the dignity of humanity. Whatever you bind in the heavenlies will be bound on earth. Whatever you loose in the heavenlies will be loosed on earth. Go into Selioch and fill it, flood it with the glory of God. Go to the hospital, the place in which you work, and don't think of yourself there as someone who's got to survive the day, because that tends to be where our heads go. But walk into those environments knowing that there is a governance that's been placed upon your shoulders. You didn't earn it, and you can't buy it. There's nothing you can do about it. It's a given. God has established it. All you have to do is believe it and walk in it. And maybe some of the people that need operations wouldn't need operations if the church actually believed and trusted what the Word of God had to say about such matters. I have a friend, she's a GP, and she's what I call a secret weapon of mass destruction. And when she's chatting with people, she doesn't say, I'm going to pray for you, but she puts her hand on the shoulders asking permission, and she is speaking in tongues like Bilio while she's walking through the diagnosis of people. And they keep coming back to her. Here's why. They don't know why, they don't know how, but when they come out of meeting her, they feel better already. So she's taking her assignment seriously. She's taking the word of God clearly as a mandate for the way she lives her life. And she's consistently talking about the kingdom coming to people without using that phraseology. She says things like this, but there's a whole new world available to us. A world full of hope, a world full of joy, a world full of peace. She's not trying to, you know, do the things we do by quoting 45 scriptures to her patients. But she's, she's saying, I know another place and I've discovered another way. And I have thoughts that perhaps are a little extreme for some people, but they really have worked for me and they've worked for other people. So as we begin this adventure and we'll continue to explore this, you are not only treasured by God. You are also trusted. And you've been given the most extraordinary authority. And that authority is not to draw people to you. It's not to make you look important. That authority is to bring life to everyone, everywhere, every day, in every context. At the end of our month of this conversation, we're going to ask you to join a partner with us in doing just that. We're going to have these cards. We're getting them ready as we speak and we're going to ask you to take to heart this mandate and say to God, I'm going to pray for somebody once a day, only for a few moments. I'm going to speak to them once a week, just a chat on the phone, not a washed in the blood conversation. Okay, just how are you, how's things going in your life? I'm going to meet with them once a month, a face-to-face -face dinner, conversation, barbecue, hopefully the weather's going to get better now. Just something ordinary where the extraordinary God can do something exceptional. And I'm going to invite them once a quarter to a place or a space that is carefully, thoughtfully available for people to engage with the truth of Jesus without all of the cringes and the difficulties that sometimes people feel. I want the Word to become flesh. 
I want the truth to turn up in your workplace. I want your intimacy to grow phenomenally. I love to see people fall in love with Jesus. I want your identity to become clearer and clearer and clearer. And we have some thoughts in our minds that need to die so that the real ones can start to live. You are who he says you are, not who you think you are. You are who he says you are. Okay, and more beyond all of that, I want every space and place filled with the glory of God. Can anyone say amen to that adventure? Why don't you stand with us, please? Father, we thank you that you have trusted us and entrusted us with our world. You've asked us, Lord God, to fill it with your glory for your kingdom to come in every environment. Lord, help us to be the kind of people that seek first your kingdom and all its righteousness. Father, you've also instructed us that no one on this planet other than your people carry a heavenly authority to reshape culture, to bring life to places where there's darkness presently, to bring joy and hope to people who've been crushed by satanic difficulties and problems. There is no other body of people I know of that have been given that mandate and that authority to subdue the world and to bring glory to God. We are the candidates you have chosen. And yet, Lord God, our own sense of inadequacy, instead of leading us to a place of God dependency, has paralyzed us. It's robbed us. It's stolen from us the bigger picture of all that you want to do in and through our lives. Father, I pray that every inadequacy will become a place of God dependency. That as I look at those moments, I wouldn't be paralyzed, but I'd, be, I'd recognize that the God in me is greater than the context around me. Father, I pray that for an uprising in this church, that we would arise and shine and the light of God would come and the glory will be, be evident upon us, God. I pray for every place and space where they put their feet for the kingdom to come, whether it's in family or in work or in recreation. And I ask, Lord God, that you would do what you promised you will do, that the glory of the latter house will far surpass its former glory. Change our minds, shape our hearts, lead our lives into the great adventure of changing this world. We ask it in Jesus' name, amen. amen. Have a great week, church. We're here on Thursday night. If you're a life group leader, a connect group leader, I keep calling them life groups, we're meeting Monday. The welcome team, we're meeting Tuesday night. I'm going to meet my wife on Wednesday night. <laughs> we'll see you next Sunday otherwise. God bless.